For the next few minutes, we're going to look at this passage again. And as I functioned as the minister of this service today, there were so many things that I wanted to say. And what I realized is that was going to lead me to what I want to say to you all and to what I want to say to the church today from this passage. I have gotten into the habit of putting on that children's worksheet the organization or the outline of the sermon. So if you want to turn to that, you can see that I have said that the theme of this passage is that when we live out our union with Christ, we are enabled to live in right relationship with God and each other. It's not much different than what I had last week, right? And you go, Bradley, are you sure you're not doing the same thing twice? I am looking at the same verses twice, but no, I'm not doing the same thing. I want you to see that there is an opportunity for us as Christians to live out of our union with Jesus. And that's weird language. That's language that if we were to talk to our friends outside of the church about that language, they would go, what in the world are you talking about? And I hope that in some senses you go, what in the world are you talking about when you say live out of your union with Jesus? What does it mean to live out of our understanding of who Jesus is? And you're here in 1 John, he says, abide in him, right? We see it in verse 29, or excuse me, 28. And then we see it at the very end of our passage today. Um, We see this command to abide in Christ. And I want to show you what it means to live in union with Christ. It's these first three verses on on page 1022. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. To see the love of God, and as another, uh, another translation of the Bible says, to behold the love that the Father has lavished on us. This idea of the overflow of love being poured out on us is that we would recognize first and foremost that God calls us his children. Look at how John says it again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. We want to be careful with this language of children of God because we have adopted this idea that every human being is a child of God. That's not exactly true. In fact, we have read some passages already in our our, um, liturgy today that the Bible says that we are called children of men, right? In Psalm 107, that all human beings are children of men and thus are equal in every way, women and men. That is exactly right. But what John is saying is he's saying, I want you, church, to recognize the love that has been lavished on you, that you are called children of God, and so you are. What have these Christians done? Well, so far, we don't know if they've done anything save put their faith and trust in Jesus. They have said, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and that by His obedience and His death, we are accepted as righteous before God, accepted by God as His children, called His children. Whenever I think about this language of lavished, I think about the Waffle House. And those of you all who are north of the Mason-Dixon line don't know much about the Waffle House unless you go to the Waffle House. Closest one, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Good luck getting there before midnight after church, all right? But if you go there, you have a chance to get hash browns. And one of the things that you have a chance to do to your hash browns is to smother them with chili. You can smother them. You can get them covered, chumped, topped, spiced. It's just ridiculous. I want you to know that what God is saying through John in this passage is that you, your life, you are smothered 
lavished with the love of God. Do you ever go to the beach? Do you ever get too much sunscreen? Does your mom or your father put too much sunscreen on your back so you're covered in just this white sunscreen? Me to last me today or yesterday at the beach, am I covered or did I rub it in enough? This idea of the love of Christ is the smothering, the covering, and the lavishing of Christ's love that defines us as his children. And it's not just this, to believe that we are his children, but listen to what it says next. It says in that verse one still, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. The world doesn't recognize that being part of God's children, part of his family is an important thing. I was so reminded of that this weekend. It didn't know Jesus and it doesn't know that to to know God's love as his child is an identifying mark. But he says in verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. Not that you will be God's children one day, but you are God's child now. And catch what it says. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears and that he is Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We are going to see Jesus in his exalted form as the apostles saw him as he raised, as he was raised from the earth and went into heaven glorified. Christ is going to come back. And those of us who are God's children now, who have put our faith and trust in Christ, are being changed. The second thing that I want you to think about when you think about living in union with Christ is not just your identity as God's child, but the fact that you're being changed. You're going through a metamorphosis. You're you're being transformed even now by the power of the Spirit in you. You're going to look more and more like Jesus. That this change is happening, and it's happening because God is making it happen. It's called sanctification. It's his process of grace at work in you, making you more and more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that as we look at Christ, we're transformed into his image. That's why we sang that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Glorious Face. Not only do the things of the earth grow strangely dim, but we are changed. We're actually changed into his image. And the third thing is right here in verse 3. It says this. It says this in verse 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. This idea that we as followers of Christ are future-oriented individuals. I don't mean to say that we only care about the future. That's not true. That would mean that this life isn't purposeful. And I want you to know this life is full of purpose for you and for me, for us. We have purpose here. But we are not focused on the here and now. We are oriented on the future and living here and now. We are oriented on Christ. These three things, the fact that we are his children, the fact that we are in transition, and the fact that we are oriented on the future is what it means to live out of union with Christ. It means that our perspective is on something else. 
Our identity isn't contrived from comparison with one another. Are you here today and you want to be set free? You're tired of being compared to your peers around you. You're tired of the weight of your identity being on your shoulders. Come to Jesus. For the first time or for the thousandth time, don't compare yourself anymore because God doesn't compare you to somebody else and decide to love you. He purposely has set his affection on you once fixed forever. You know how you can remember that? Off, O-F-F, once and fixed and forever. God's love on you. I want each of you to know this summer. Listen, this is my prayer for you this summer. We're about to leave for a month. We've never done that before. I'm anxious as all get out leaving. But I want you to know that I want for each of you to know and experience God's love for you once fixed on you forever. I want you to know the power of God's love. And I want you to know I'm praying that you would know that. If you're here today and you want to confess, look, I've never known God's love like that. I've been raised in the church and I've never known his love. Pray to him. The prayer that has been promised to be answered in Scripture is the prayer that says, God, send your spirit. Jesus says in Luke 10, anyone who prays for the spirit of God, God promises to give his spirit. And the spirit testifies to our hearts who Jesus is and in turn who we are, the gift of faith. And then do you want to know what you need to do this summer? You need to love one another. You need to love one another because your love for each other convinces you that you're a child of God. It convinces you of this. I want to give you very quickly these three misconceptions of what John is saying in this passage so that you will keep reading this passage all summer long. I don't want you to stop. I want you to read 1 John over and over and I don't want you to miss what 1 John is saying. So I'm going to run through these quickly, all right? The first misconception is this in verses 6 and 9, that real Christians, good Christians, don't sin anymore. That is a misconception that comes out of these verses. No, look, it's a natural misconception. Look at it with me. Read verse 9. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Some of your other translations says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And you go, well, it sure sounds like real Christians don't sin anymore. It sure sounds like good Christians must not sin anymore. And then look all the way down here in verse 9. Look at what it says in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But I want you to see that that's not what John means when he says these things. I want you to see that there is tension that is introduced by the way that John writes. This tension is obvious, but it's also obvious that he recognizes that we're sinful. If you just turn over and you read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, he says this, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's impossible to say that John believes that Christians will never sin again. But you and I both need to understand that the way he speaks introduces tension into our lives, doesn't it? That there is a real battle in our lives. The battle exists because the Spirit of God has been poured out into our hearts and we are also children of this world. We're flesh. And so we have the battle of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh that come in conflict with each other right inside of us. It's not so much that we have a split personality as much as we have split desires. Because John is not saying that those things are equal, that it's not yin and yang, that it's not just Zoroastrianism 2.0, where you have good and evil that just transcend everything and good luck fighting that. No, no, no. In fact, John writes the entire book of Revelation to undo that concept. But to say that the Spirit is winning the battle completely. We read in the Old Testament and we memorized in the Old Testament, God saying through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Many of you children can sing that song right now. And God promised that he's put a new spirit within us. And he has said that by that spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. And if you want to read those, go read Galatians 5. You can see what those things are. But what I want you to see is that you are in a battle. And I want you to say you are at danger. Right now, you are at danger if you do not believe there's a war going on in you. (laughs) Again, I'm not saying that that war isn't being won by the Spirit of God. It completely is. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you have received His Spirit. By grace, you have been saved through faith. But there is a battle within you. If you don't think that that battle is real within you, then you're in real danger. But this is what I want from you in this section. I want for you this summer to fight. I want you to fight the battle that's in you the battle between the flesh and the spirit. I want you to know that that battle is fueled by the love of God. See the amazing love of God that he's given you, that he's poured out Jesus on you. I don't want you to fight in fear. Oh my goodness, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? I want you to fight in confidence and boldness. And I want you to recognize that that tension that's in you, junior hires, you are tasting it for the first time The oldest among us should not forget that tension. That that tension is because of the very presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Be encouraged, but do not stop fighting. The second misconception is this misconception that we get out of verse 7. Look at it. It says this, Little children, let no one deceive you. And again, I told you this last week, I'm convinced that John doesn't keep saying children because he just has this fatherly affection. I want you to know one of the things that I prayed for for you all, all year long, is that God would give me his heart for you. And I want, to know, I want you to know he's done that. I, I am moved with affection for you all. I love you. But John isn't saying, I love you and I want to be sensitive to you. John keeps calling the church children 
Because your very identity is rooted as children of God. Don't miss that. John says this in verse 7, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And I want you to hear very clearly the second misconception, that your works make you righteous. That is a fear that we could drive one another toward. And I want you to know that that is not true. When John says that whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, he does not mean that your works make you righteous. Listen, there was a huge theological debate called the Reformation that happened in over the 15th and the 16th centuries and then on into our present day in which the argument was, what is justification? What does it mean to stand right before God? The Catholic Church argued that justification starts with the grace of God, but it's a process that goes on through your whole life and that you must cooperate with it so that acts of love are generated from you for you to have any confidence in your justification. It requires acts of love of you. And you notice that when it requires something of you, your confidence in being justified by God is destabilizing. Because you begin to ask the question, have I loved enough? Have I done enough? But what I want you to see that it's not proof texting, but it's the very heart of the Bible that John speaks against that. He says it again in verse 2, Beloved, we are children of God now. Not you will be if you live faithfully to the end. He says you are children of God now, he says. This is a declarative act of God. See what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. God has declared it by pouring out the love of Christ on you and me. Boom, once, done, justification, a declarative act, once and forever. Sanctification, a process by grace. But don't mix those two up because you will be driven of fear. And you will be destabilized if you mix them up. And I don't want that for you. The Westminster Confession of Faith was written in response to these questions of what does it mean to be saved by grace through faith. And listen to how they talked about justification. That God freely justifies those whom he justifies. Counting and accepting those persons as righteous by imputing the obedience of Christ, taking the obedience of Christ and putting them on you. And not just the obedience of Christ, but the satisfaction of Christ's death. Christ has taken all of the punishment of God. And he has imputed the obedience and the satisfaction of Christ on you. Paul says this in Romans, that we aren't justified by works, but the one who is justified is the one who believes in Jesus. And this is what I want for you this summer. This is what I'm praying for you this summer. I want you to have the stability of Christ's righteousness as yours from the start. 
I don't want you to love those who are outside the church because you think that by loving them, God will finally be satisfied with me. I want to take away any fear that you have that you aren't good enough. And I want to assure you of this. You are not good enough. (laughs) You aren't good enough. I am not good enough. We will never be good enough. But we are justified freely by God's pouring out his love on us, by giving us Jesus. If you're here today and you know you aren't good enough when you stand before a holy God and you want the confidence to know your identity, trust in Christ. Accept him as your savior. Rest in him. Because I, your pastor, want for you stability as your starting point so that you can love, not as one who's trying to find balance all the time, but one who knows who you are. And then finally, this last misconception, and then I'll be quiet. This misconception I have phrased in the entirety of 1 John, because I hope that you're reading 1 John, and I want you to be thinking about this misconception before I leave for a month. And I especially wanted you to know what I was going to be praying for you. This misconception of John could be found at the end when he says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he says, Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And oftentimes we read 1 John, and we're about to launch into John's imperative, his admonishing of us to love one another. And we might end up saying, as is popular in our culture, all we need is love. All we really need is love. Now look, love is this beautiful thing. And one of the things that we noted this weekend is that this wedding and the beauty of it, it, there was something that was ideal about it. It was like weighty and profound. But to say that all we need is love isn't right. What do we usually mean by that? We mean all we need is acceptance. We go, can't we just accept everyone? Can't we just, you know, just say to love you is to accept you and to encourage you to become the best you you can be? Look, I want to say apart from Christianity, that's a really good motivation in your life. That'd be really hard to do, to love everyone so that they could become the best human being that they could possibly be. And if you don't trust in Jesus, that's, that's a reasonable way to live your life. I want you to know that. It's an admirable way. The people that I was with this weekend who had no interest in Jesus or, or Christianity or God's word were admirable individuals who loved well. I really believe that. But what I want you to see is that is not what John is saying. John actually combines the keeping of the law and love. And listen to what he says there in verse 10 again. By this it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Now before you get too bent out of shape and understand this idea of the children of the devil... I want you to understand that the devil is the one who implanted into our hearts the doubt that God loves us. And so to be a child of the devil is to disbelieve who God has said he is toward human beings. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that you're red and have horns in your head. But what it means is that you are motivated by disbelief of who God is. 
What's the difference between those who are children of God, those who who believe God's love that has been poured out on them as children of God, transforming and future-oriented? The difference is this. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And if you twist those and make them positive, you say the one who is God's child is the one who practices righteousness And from verse 4, you understand that practicing righteousness is to not sin, is to keep the law, right? God has given us a new heart and a new spirit, and He has written His law in our hearts, not just on tablets of stone, but in our hearts. And what would that law be? But the Ten Commandments that we know what it means to please God. And so we know that keeping the law and loving people is interdependent. We read in John 1 that through Moses the law came, but through Jesus came grace and truth. Now, if you think about that as exclusive, you're you're missing a huge point. The law did come through Moses, but the law was gracious. The law taught truthfully about who God was. But in Jesus, grace and truth were known in their apex, to their highest height. Truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Grace in that Christ died freely for you. And God has freely bestowed His obedience and satisfaction on you completely so that we begin to understand Jesus, who kept the law, lives in us. We need the law. We need the law to know what it means to love. And this is what I want for you this summer. Listen to this, the last one. I want you to care about the law of God. To care about the law of God that is written on your heart. You see how these fit together? I want you to fight the battle and the tension that's in you. And I want you to know that that tension is good because it's the presence of the Spirit in your life. Be encouraged by that. The second thing is I want for you is I want you to have the, the stability of Christ's righteousness as your starting place. And I want you to know that what it means to love is to keep the law. And to love others is to love them in a way that encourages them to keep the law. Do you see that connection there? I'm going to close with the quote, so turn to it in this order of worship. It is not the Word of God, okay? This is Sinclair Ferguson, but I think it's really thoughtful, and you can see how it comes straight out of John. He says this of the commandments. The commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured out into the heart of the Holy Spirit runs. Did you get that? The commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life, the engine, that is empowered by the love of God, which is poured out into the engine, the heart, it's that track on which the engine runs. Love empowers the engine. Law guides the direction. Isn't that beautiful how he says that? They're mutually interdependent. And then I want you to hear this, and I will close with this. The notion that love can operate apart from the law. In other words, you can say, you know something? I'm going to love people, and I'm going to decide what part of the law is necessary to talk about and what part isn't. I'll decide because I'm going to love people. Suddenly, 
it means that you're directing what love is instead of the law directing what love is, right? And this is what he says. The notion that love can operate apart from the law is a figment of our imagination. If you think you can say you love Jesus, but you don't keep his law in any way, shape, or form, it's a figment of your imagination. He says it's not just bad theology. It is poor psychology. Because those who operate that way He says it, that mindset, has to borrow from the law to give eyes to love. Apart from the law, we would not even know what it means to love. Love to what end? To what purpose? What would even glorify God? But you see, I want you to care about the law this summer and to allow it to direct the way that you and I love. To live and to abide in the union with Christ is to know our identity, to expect our transformation, and to orient our minds on the future. To do that is to enter into conflict in our own beings, but to do so from a solid place of Christ's righteousness being ours, and then to care about the way we live. I want you to know wherever you go this summer, However you vacate, guess what you can take with you? God's Word. Even if you don't have a Bible, guess where you can find it? On an app on your phone. And guess what? Oddly enough, the Holy Spirit still uses His Word to change your heart. Isn't that amazing? God is pursuing you and me. And I want you to know, I love praying for you that these truths would hit home. Pray with me as we come to the table.